Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Mother to us all. Amen. One side effect of the popularity of zombies in pop culture in these years since the launch of the Walking Dead TV series and its spin-offs is that around this time of year, I will see some joke or other making the rounds on Facebook comparing the resurrection of Jesus Christ to the zombie apocalypse. I used to take offense. It's not that I can't handle religious jokes. It's just that this genre isn't even very funny. They're just cheap shots that seem to deliberately miss the point of the resurrection. But lately, I figure my faith is strong enough to handle frivolous memes, and for sure the Son of God has endured a whole lot worse. That, or I've just gotten numb to them. Besides, I really like The Walking Dead. A few seasons into the show, there's a sequence of episodes set in and around St. Sarah's Episcopal Church of West Poplar Creek, Georgia. Both the church and the town are fictional. The priest of the church, one Father Gabriel, would be, if he were real, a candidate for the worst priest in the Episcopal Church. Mostly, that's because he's a coward who locked his parishioners out of the church while they were ripped apart by the undead horde. But also, the St. Sarah's set contains an Easter egg in the form of a hymn board displaying a series of Bible verses. And if you look them up, you'll find that at one, apparently at one point, Father Gabriel put on some kind of service of lessons and carols for the zombie apocalypse. The verses are some of the same ones we read at Easter. Ezekiel's Valley of the Dry Bones, Paul, writing about how in baptism we join in Christ's death and are raised to new life. Luke's men in dazzling clothes at Jesus' empty tomb, asking Mary Magdalene and her companions, why do you look for the living among the dead? Okay, so Father Gabriel, a priest of the church, presumably seminary trained, in addition to being a coward who throws his congregation to the wolves, as it were, is a lousy theologian who can't tell the difference between the walking dead and the risen Christ. Like I said, worst priest in the Episcopal Church. But lately, I'm willing to cut him a little slack. This is partly because being in a church surrounded by hordes of ravenous undead, now including your former parishioners, is sure to be a confusing time in one's life. And partly, it's because a few weeks ago, I had the good fortune to attend a series of talks by Jeff Lee, Bishop of Chicago, along with Mother Suzanne and many of the other clergy of this diocese. 
Bishop Lee did a deep dive on the Triduum, the three days leading up to Easter. And one of the things that he pointed out is that the great 50 days of the Easter season exceed the 40 penitential days of Lent because A, we have something really momentous to celebrate, and B, we need 50 days at least to wrap our minds around this momentous thing that we're celebrating. I mean, Lent is a lot of things, but one thing it isn't is mysterious. We know our sins and our shortcomings only too well, and whether at a synagogue in San Diego, mosques in New Zealand, or churches in Sri Lanka, the fallenness of our world is ever laid bare before us. But the resurrection, that event in which Christ broke the bonds of death and rose victorious from the grave, that causes wickedness to be put to flight and sin to be washed away, by which earth and heaven are joined and humankind is reconciled to God, that event, the one that allows us to go from denying Jesus three times in the pre-dawn darkness to saying boldly in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, that takes some time to comprehend. And so while I still critique Father Gabriel's biblical scholarship, Bishop Lee's observation about the length of Easter and what we're supposed to be doing with this time makes me a bit more humble about how well I really understand the resurrection. In his sermon at the Easter Vigil last Saturday, Father Charles Allen observed that a notable detail of the resurrection narratives in the Gospels is how inconsistent they all are. But one thing they have very much in common is that the risen Jesus is very hard to recognize and is in a body that seems not to obey the laws of physics, what with Jesus just appearing out of nowhere in a locked room, not once but twice in today's gospel reading. Charles pointed out that that tells us the resurrection body is a different kind of body, a spiritual body, as St. Paul puts it. The thing the zombie Jesus jokes miss is the spirituality of the resurrected body, that body's forgiveness and salvific power. But they do get one thing right, the bodiness of the risen Lord, the messiness, the open wounds. They get that resurrection isn't a flick of the wand, but skin and teeth and guts. The spiritual body of Jesus, the firstborn of the dead, is not merely an idea that one contemplates, but a person one encounters, as Thomas does in our gospel today. Apart from the crucifixion of Jesus and the beheading of John the Baptist, I think this is the most gruesome story in the gospels. I'd also argue that when it comes to interpersonal relationships, it's also the most inappropriate. 
And what Thomas is asking for is pretty forward, right? And anyway, what was he hoping to learn from putting his finger inside Jesus' hand and his hand in the wound on Jesus' side? I actually have a little sense of his motivation. Nearly 15 years ago, I broke my hand in a bicycle accident and had to have surgery to repair the bone. Right before the surgery, I asked the anesthesiologist if, instead of putting me all the way under, he'd allow me to stay awake so I could watch. I had the opportunity and wanted to know, what do I look like in there under the skin? To my surprise, he and the surgeon agreed. Looking inside myself, literally, was interesting in any number of ways. But the main thing I learned was that for as much as we use surgical as a synonym for precise, working with the body is a messy business. The surgeon had to test a couple of screws in my bone to find the one that was the right size to hold the plate in place. I've done the same thing to the walls of my house. And when at the end of the surgery, he loosened the clamps so that he could stitch me back up, I was amazed by how quickly the blood flowed back in and how fast he had to move with the needle and thread to contain it. I suspect that this knowledge is what Thomas was after. Not just to know that the risen Christ inhabited a real body. I mean, to confirm that, you know, he could have shaken Jesus' hand or given him a hug. I think Thomas wanted to be sure that resurrection works on the messy things in the messy world, where after Jesus ascended, Thomas was going to have to keep on living and where we live now. I think he wanted to know that the Jesus, who in his earthly body turned his own spit and some dirt into a healing mud, hadn't now decided that he was just turning away from the humble things of creation. He wanted to know that the risen Jesus, the Alpha and Omega, the one who is, who was, and who is to come in his spiritual body, would transform bones, tendons, and flesh into so much more. Jesus gave Thomas what he asked for. But Thomas's demand for certainty also earned him a rebuke. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Jesus is right, of course. Faith is, after all, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Yet Thomas's forwardness, his inappropriateness, his need to know, is a gift to us all these centuries on. Blessed indeed are we who have not seen that we can believe what Thomas saw, that the risen Lord will meet us in all of the messy, turbulent places of ourselves, our souls, and bodies to forgive our faults and restore our lives. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.